Hi, this is Hannah Lang Dell and Rachel Hine, Duke Plastic Surgery residents on The Resident Review, a Duke Plastic Surgery podcast. This is a lecture series designed to aid in preparation for our yearly in-service examination. Our goal is to take you through high-yield topics along with experts in their respective fields in order to maximize your knowledge of potential scores. Today, we'll be continuing our quick hit series, which gives facts directly from questions from the in-service from the past five years, and we'll be going over breast reconstruction. Rachel, you want to start us off? So we'll start a little bit uh, talking about anatomy. For the nipple areolar complex, sensation is mainly derived from the lateral fourth intercostal, although there is other contributions from the anterior third, fourth, and fifth intercostal nerves. When you think about a mastectomy, after a mastectomy is complete, the anterior fourth intercostal nerve is most likely to provide sensation to the nipple areolar complex as it courses more superficially. The lateral fourth intercostal main sensory branch travels more deep and is um, severed during a mastectomy. Next, going through a few topics of benign breast disease. These are often tested. The first is the phylloides tumor. This is a benign tumor, but wide surgical margins of at least one centimeter are recommended to decrease the risk of recurrence. When you look at it under histology, you'll see both stromal and epithelial hyperplasia. The next is common fiber adenoma. This is the most common breast tumor in adolescent females age 14 to 16. And treatment is excisional biopsy or observation. Under histology, you can see that this has stromal epithelial balance as opposed to phylloides tumor, which has stromal and epithelial hyperplasia. A giant fiber adenoma is a common fiber adenoma that is greater than five centimeters in size. And then complex fiber adenomas are characterized by fibrocystic changes on glandular tissue with underlying features of common fiber adenoma. A papilloma is a polyp of epithelium lined breast ducts, and this can typically present with bloody nipple discharge. The treatment for this is an excision. If this is fully excised in breast reconstruction or reduction, no further management is necessary. So if there's a question regarding an incidentally found papilloma on a breast reduction specimen, there's no further surgery that needs to be done. Just work up with a mammogram. The next is fibrocystic changes. So this is a solitary mass that may fluctuate in size and tenderness during the menstrual cycle. This is not linked to an increased risk of breast cancer. And then lastly, there's atypical hyperplasia, which carries a four to five fold increased risk for developing breast cancer. And it is associated with hormone therapy. If a patient comes in with a biopsy of atypical hyperplasia, the next step would be to determine the risk for breast cancer by calculating the Gale model risk assessment. Great. Thanks, Rachel. I will next review breast cancer. The American College of Surgery recommends for average risk patients, they should receive screening mammography starting at age 40 to 44 uh, with annual screening once patients turn 45 up until age 54 with biannual screening for patients greater than 55. And these are for patients who are in good health and have life expectancy of at least 10 years. So if a mass is found in a young woman less than 30, the initial evaluation is done with ultrasound, where for women greater than 30, the initial screening is done with diagnostic mammogram with ultrasound. Screening mammography consists of two views and is appropriate for asymptomatic patients, whereas diagnostic mammography incorporates additional views. Ductal adenocarcinoma is the most common form of breast cancer and it arises from glandular tissue. 12% of women develop breast cancer 
and patients with a family history, the risk increases to 15%. If there's a family history of bilateral or premenopausal breast cancer, the patient's risk uh, can increase up to 45%. And there are several risks for hormone-sensitive breast cancer. And this basically deals with how much estrogen exposure a patient has. So if a patient has early menarche or uh, late menopause, then patients are at increased risk for hormone-sensitive breast cancer. Additionally, women with breast cancer have a higher risk for another breast cancer lesion on the contralateral breast. And then in terms of staging, we use the TNM staging system. And for T, which stands for tumor, TIS is tumor in situ. T1 are for tumors less than two centimeters. T2 is two to five centimeters. T3 is greater than five centimeters. And T4 involves extension into the chest wall or skin. N is for lymph nodes. N0 is no lymph node involvement. N1 is one to three nodes that are involved. N2 is four to nine nodes. And N3 is greater than 10 nodes. And M is M0 means there's no metastasis, and M1 means there is metastasis. And there was a question on our last in service about um, lobular carcinoma in situ, and this is actually not in the part of TNM staging system. So everything that Hannah just covered is uh, for ductal carcinoma and ductal carcinoma in situ. So the National Comprehensive Cancer Network guidelines for radiation therapy, which we can be tested on, include positive sentinel node with unknown status of axillary nodes, one to three positive nodes on permanent histology, close surgical margins of less than five millimeters, positive surgical margins or inability to get clear margins, and then four plus positive axillary lymph nodes. Breast conserving therapy is a treatment for women that involves lumpectomy or any form of breast conserving therapy followed by radiation. Preoperative chemotherapy increases the chances of women being able to undergo partial mastectomy or lumpectomy. And contraindications to breast conservation therapy include multicentric disease with two or more tumors in separate quadrants of the breast, such that they cannot be encompassed by a single excision, diffuse or malignant microcalcifications on mammography, history of prior radiation in the same breast or chest wall, pregnancy, persistently positive margins despite re-excision. Relative contraindications to radiation include lupus and scleroderma, the BRCA1 gene, and small size breasts. And then some women will opt to undergo a nipple sparing mastectomy, but there are some exclusion criteria, and this includes a tumor size greater than five centimeters, location less than two centimeters from the nipple, nipple discharge or areolar discharge, Paget's disease, axillary disease, tumor involvement on retroareolar biopsy lymphovascular invasion, and then HER2 positive patients. So for the contralateral prophylactic mastectomy, this overall increases the risk of surgical site complications. Women with BRCA mutations will benefit from the risk reduction of a contralateral prophylactic mastectomy. However, in the normal population, there's been no proven oncologic benefit to contralateral prophylactic mastectomy or CPM in those patients with average risk. It has not been proven to improve the cure rate, reduce recurrence, and increases the number of operations. And then frequently we see radiation therapy sequelae in these patients, usually that undergo breast conservation therapy with radiation. And this includes erythema, edema, desquamation, hyperpigmentation, and ulceration in the acute phase. 
And then the chronic injuries include atrophy, dryness, telangiectasia, dyspigmentation, dyschromia, and fibrosis. And wounds can occur chronically years later from fibrosis and necrosis. An example of this is osteoradionecrosis of the ribs. When we talk about hormonal therapy, there are several things that we learn about aromatase inhibitors compare the conversion of androgens to estrogen. And we often see patients frequently taking tamoxifen. This is a selective estrogen receptor modulator. This medication is associated with thromboembolic events, increased rates of flap failure and decreased rates of flap salvage. This should be held 28 days preoperatively in patients undergoing microsurgical breast reconstruction. And finally, BRCA1 and 2 are associated with breast and ovarian cancers and can also be associated with pancreatic and prostate cancer. Women with BRCA1 have 80% risk of breast cancer by 65 and 10% risk for ovarian cancer. Hannah, do you want to talk a little bit about autologous breast reconstruction? Yes. So the most common flap that we use is the deep flap, the deep inferior epigastric perforator flap. As we know, there are four perfusion zones. The medial rows are perfusion zones one and two, and the lateral zones are row three, which is ipsilateral, and zone four is contralateral. The medial row perforator flaps are perfused as one, two, three, and four, whereas if we're using a lateral row perforator flap, the perfusion zones are one, three, two, then four. The fan and steel incisions typically divide the superficial epigastric circulation and gives the flap more robust venous circulation. And this decreases uh, the fat necrosis in the flap. And this is due to the delay phenomenon. In terms of sensation, in order to have a sensate flap, you can co-opt the intercostal nerves from the breast to the segmental intercostal nerve through the flap. And this is typically T10. And studies support improved patient satisfaction with autologous reconstruction in the setting of unilateral reconstruction. And this also provides better symmetry. There are many complications to be aware of for autologous breast reconstruction. There is commonly venous congestion, and this can be from venous thrombosis, inadequate perforator selection, or superficial venous dominance of the flap. And this presents as a blue-colored flap. There will be brisk capillary refill, cooler temperatures, and rapid bleeding of dark blood on pen prick. And if this is noticed, the treatment is emergent exploration and salvage rates are higher if this is explored within six hours. If the venous anastomosis is intact, then you should consider a second anastomosis with the SIEV uh, because the flap might have a superficial dominant system. For patients with lupus, there is a higher rate or higher risk of thromboembolic events, but overall there's a similar profile for flap failure. And steroids may inhibit wound healing, and they also have higher rates of postoperative hernia. Patients with morbid obesity with a BMI of greater than 35 are likely to have delayed healing of the donor site, and patients with a previous cesarean scar also, this contributes to a risk for delayed wound healing of the donor site. I know this has been a question before, but the SIEA flap has higher rates of flap failure than the deep flap. However, there is less muscle bulges because you don't have to dissect through the rectus and similar rates of fat necrosis. So the pedicle tram is another option, and this flap is based on the SIEA. This is typically less robust than the deep system. However, if you divide the surgery into two procedures, you can have the delay phenomenon 
by ligating the deep system in the first procedure, and this can facilitate overall viability of the flap. Uh, subcostal incisions have a risk of non-viability due to ligation of the superficial system. So just important to know the patient's past surgical history. Rachel, do you want to go through some of the other flaps if an abdominally-based flap isn't an option for the patient? Sure. So there's many different flaps, but I'll highlight some of the most common ones. The first one is the profunda artery perforator flap. So this is based on perforators from the profunda and the skin island design is the posterior medial thigh in the gluteal fold region. And you can take about a seven centimeter width for this. There's a tug flap. There's a tug and a vug. So the transverse upper gracilis, vertical upper gracilis, but the transverse upper gracilis is based on a ellipse of the anterior medial thigh with the superior border within the gluteal fold. And this is based on perforators from the descending branch of the medial circumflex artery. The eye gap or the inferior gluteal artery perforator flap, its design includes an ellipse of skin of the inferior buttock with the inferior border within the gluteal fold. And then the S gap flap or the superior gluteal artery perforator flap, the design includes an ellipse of skin in the middle buttock from the PSIS posterior superior iliac spine to the apex of the greater trochanter. Um, next, we'll go over tissue expanders and implants and implant position. Hannah, do you want to talk to us a little bit about that? Sure. I know a question that's been on there fairly recently. It was regarding carbon dioxide expanders. And one disadvantage is that they do not have the ability to deflate. Outcomes show no difference in complications. And overall, there's a faster expansion process. But important to know that they cannot be deflated. Uh, in terms of antibiotic prophylaxis, the CDC recommends 24 hours of perioperative antibiotics beginning 30 minutes prior to skin incision. Radiation to the tissue expander leads to increased rates of reconstructive failure as compared to radiation to an implant. However, there is better, better aesthetic results and less capsular contracture if there is radiation to the expander. This is a good choice in patients whose radiation status is undetermined. So patients where when you're performing the reconstruction, you're not sure what the pathology will be and if they'll need radiation. And it preserves the patient's skin envelope and keeps the options open for the definitive reconstruction. So in terms of implants, to prevent infection, you should use a pre-surgical chlorhexidine wash, proper antibiotic timing, again, 30 minutes before incision, and continue antibiotics 24 hours after surgery. Fat grafting can be used in conjunction with implant placement, and this has no higher risk for breast cancer if you perform fat grafting, but it can increase the incidence of benign lesions such as cysts and calcifications. Perioral incisions for nipple sparing mastectomy causes higher rates of nipple necrosis when implant reconstruction is used. And often fat grafting can be used to address contour deformities and breast reconstruction, often in the upper pole. There are two main implant positions, subpectoral and prepectoral. So we mainly use subpectoral implant positions for very thin patients. This can cause an animation deformity because the implants can move laterally during pectoralis animation, such as weightlifting or push-ups. And the prepectoral placement typically involves covering the implant with an acellular dermal matrix. And ADM is associated with a decreased rate of capsular contracture, however, an increased rate of seromas. For the complications of implant reconstruction, radiation increases the risk for capsular contracture, seroma, wound healing, and infection. And overall, the infection rate is about 8% for breast reconstruction 
And the most common organisms are Staphylococcus for gram-positive and Pseudomonas for, for gram-negative. Um, salvage is less successful if there is culture-positive staph, atypical pathogens, if the patient has a fever or an elevated white blood cell count, and associated risks include obesity, poorly controlled diabetes, smoking, history of radiation, postoperative seroma, or an implant biofilm. And the implant position does not affect the salvage rates. So we'll talk a little bit about contralateral symmetry procedures. This is frequently necessary to achieve symmetry after a mastectomy and reconstruction. And this can include mastopexy, reduction mammoplasty, or augmentation mastopexy. And it can be performed safely with unilateral autologous tissue reconstruction. For nipple reconstruction, the blood supply for this is based off of the subdermal plexus and considered a random patterned blood supply. Techniques for this include the skate flap, star flap, CV flap, and the most common complication includes loss of projection of your nipple reconstruction. Nipple reconstruction in general has increased rates of satisfaction and quality of life. Again, we'll talk a little bit about breast implant-associated ALCL. This typically presents as a late seroma after textured implant placement, and workup generally begins with an ultrasound followed by an FNA. You need to make sure in your fine needle aspiration that you sent for CD30. And capsules have a significant presence of gram-negative bacteria, Ralstonia, which was on our last year's in-service examination compared to non-tumor capsules. And finally, we'll go over a few miscellaneous topics covered in breast reconstruction. So some of the biggest factors for receiving breast reconstruction from previous studies include distance from reconstructive surgeons and insurance status. Postmenopausal hormone therapy does have an increased risk for invasive breast cancer, but does decrease your risk for diabetes and osteoporosis. It is no longer thought to impact coronary artery disease as many of the earlier studies had published. Contrast-induced nephropathy is common in patients receiving CT scans prior or after breast reconstruction, and prevention measures include optimization of fluids, avoidance of contrast media, and av avoiding repeated exposure. Again, we'll mention Mondor's disease, which tends to come up often on our in-service, and this is a superficial thrombophlebitis of the breast common after breast procedures. It presents as pain, redness, edema, and a presence of a thickened tender cord. This will resolve in four to six weeks with symptomatic treatment, including NSAIDs and warm compresses. And the New England Journal of Medicine had published some preventative measures for surgical site infections. And this includes mupirocin twice daily to the nares preoperatively, chlorhexidine scrubs five days prior to surgery, and ANSEF given 30 to 59 minutes prior to skin incision, as well as smoking cessation at at least four weeks before and after surgery. The Women's Health and Cancer Rights Act. This is an act that requires insurance plans to cover the cost of breast reconstruction after mastectomy and includes all stages of reconstruction as well as contralateral procedures to provide symmetry. Unfortunately, this does not apply to women undergoing breast conservation therapy, such as lumpectomy with radiation. So be aware of that if the question stem includes breast conservation therapy. And finally, a lot of plastic surgeons use the Caprini risk assessment model to assess the risk for venous thromboembolism. And the ASPS uh, venous thromboembolism task force recommends those undergoing elective plastic surgery who have a score of seven or greater to have risk reduction strategies, including limiting OR time, weight reduction, discontinuation of hormone therapy, early postoperative mobilization, and consider extended use of molecular weight heparin. 
plastic surgery cases greater than 60 minutes should undergo prevention measures. And if you have a Caprini risk between three and six and major surgery, you should have intraoperative low molecular weight heparin or unfractionated heparin. And the highest risk factors in this risk assessment model, which we have been tested on for a score of three points include age over 75, a history of a DVT or PE, positive factor five Leiden, a history of HIT, a history of elevated anti-cardiolipin or serum homocysteine or prothrombin or lupus anticoagulant, congenital or acquired thrombophilia and a family history of thrombosis. Awesome. Thank you. Uh, tune in for our next topic, breast reduction. Thank you. We would like to thank Allergan for their continued support of our podcast. Allergan Aesthetics is now a part of Abvi, an international leader in many different therapeutic categories. Many of the topics and therapies we discuss on our podcast are provided by Allergan. They continue to be a leader in the fields of breast reconstruction, abdominal wall reconstruction, medical aesthetics, and much more. Additionally, they are dedicated to supporting the education of plastic surgery residents and plastic surgeons across the country.